Welcome to Montana 3000, Tales of 15 Minutes From Now, read by the author, Sean Gallagher. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and see the website for updates on new episodes at montana3000.com. And now, your host, Sean Gallagher. Horse of a Certain Persuasion A few things to know about horses. First, they can tell if a rider is comfortable in the saddle. If you're not, a horse of a certain persuasion will take advantage of the fact. It'll ignore your commands, regarding them more as the ill-conceived suggestions of a hapless nitwit who happens to be temporarily strapped to their back and is laboring under the delusion of authority, rather than the adroit directives of a skilled and confidence-inspiring equestrian who sits tall and strong astride a partner in adventure, an equal in enterprise. Also, some horses hate water and won't go near it, no matter what. So if you come to a river you need to cross on the back of an aquaphobic horse, it looks like some cowboy is getting wet. Another thing, you can't tug too much on a horse's reins, or it will become hard-mouthed and stop responding to commands. It's a tough condition to break, usually requiring special tack called a hackamore or bitless bridle. Horses can also become hard-mouthed due to lesions or abrasions in the mouth, requiring the attention of a veterinarian. Horses have unique personalities, a truth most evidently displayed when in a gathering, like a trail ride or on a roundup. It's here you see personified a horse's desire to find and keep its spot in line. Like people, the world of horses divides into leaders and followers, and they like it that way. Try putting a horse who wants to follow in front of the line and watch you don't get kicked in the head. Put a horse who wants to lead in the rear and mind your flank doesn't have a bite taken out of it. Horses know their place. But don't hang a horse expert around my neck. I only know these things because I rabbit trail on the internet when I'm bored. I drilled on the topic of horses because I was heading to Arizona last spring and figured Millie would want to ride one when we got there. The only horse experience I had prior to our mildly terrifying Tucson pony train, courtesy of the friendly but overpriced ranch hands at Amigos Stables, consisted of driving past the black-painted buggies of the Millersburg Amish on the way from Youngstown to Columbus to see my grandparents as a kid. I remember the ambling carriage horses wore little black blinders the size of playing cards along the sides of their faces. I asked my mom what they were for, and she told me they were to shield the animals' fields of vision from the anarchy of progress. She made air quotes with her fingers at the word progress. Thinking back on it, Her mouth was a hard line when she said it. I don't think she was being playful. I've also drilled on the Amish. Did you know in some Amish communities, between the ages of 14 and 21, Amish kids are allowed, expected even, to rebel against their elders? It's the time before they become full-fledged adult Amish, when they mingle with the English and see what life is like off res. It's true, it's called rumspringa. That's German for jumping around. Most of them stay pretty calm, and lots of them don't even do it. But some of them raise holy hell. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, some of them go bananas. They can come back to the farm anytime they like before the window closes, no questions asked. If they do something super messed up, like kill a guy, the community has to take them back and hide them. But if they try to come back after time runs out, well, no dice. Total excommunicado. Sometimes, the final departed change their minds and are so desperate to come home they have to be run off by their family with a pitchfork. It can get harsh. Again, 
This is all information available to anyone with a computer and a connection, so don't give me too much credit. I'm just passing along information here. The only parts you might have a little trouble verifying are the stuff about killing the guy, and the pitchfork stuff. I didn't make it up per se, I just extrapolated a bit. And I don't think it's a stretch, more an acknowledgement of the natural consequences of these ideas. Think about it. If you lock a person up for most of their life, then send them off into the wild without supervision or context, what do you think is going to happen? And if they do go out and mess up real bad, isn't it on you to help them out? Like I said, natural consequences. It's kind of a hobby of mine to think about outcomes for things people do. I like to watch them and see what happens and compare it to what I thought was going to happen. You know, like, there goes A doing B. I thought C was going to happen. Didn't see D coming. I find people a constant source of amusement. They're always surprising you with bad choices. Millie thinks it's poor form to analyze people without them knowing it. But I tell her it's the purest form of social science. How else do you avoid making the same mistake twice? Here's an example. There was this girl in high school named Quinley, but everyone called her Candy because she was so sweet. And also because her dad drove a windowless van that looked like something a kidnapper would hand candy out of. He was a painter. Houses and walls, not canvases. So anyhow, Candy was really into politics. She loved government and history and all that jazz. She was whip smart, too. Ended up getting a scholarship and went back east for college. She comes home one summer to do an internship at Senator Best's office. The younger one, not the older one. And she becomes friends with one of the staffers, a girl named Charlie. Charlie shows her the ropes, takes her to meetings, introduces her to donors, teaches her the lingo, that kind of stuff. These two are getting along great, and everyone on the staff really likes Candy. She might even get a full-time job offer when she graduates. So one day, Charlie takes Candy to the monthly Weapons and Self-Defense Freedom Rally down at Iron Fist Lake. If you've never been, it's a laid-back deal. No one's there to make trouble, just tailgate and gel, and maybe squeeze a few off into the air during the group trigger pull. So everything's cool, and people are just hanging out. And then a group of eugenics advocates show up and start handing out flyers and chatting up the crowd. Candy winds up in conversation with a guy espousing the genetic superiority of the Indo-Canadians, and she can't help but think he might be onto something. Her opinion colored in some part, no doubt, by the results of the field test he swabs her with, right there next to the lake. In 40 minutes of talking, this guy changes her whole worldview. So what does Candy do? The next morning, she heads into the senator's office and quits on the spot. Then she flies back to D.C., changes her major to genomic assemblage with a minor in Canadian lineage, and three months later, she's dead. Looked the wrong way, stepping off a curb and got creamed by an electro tram. And there you have it. Natural consequences. Millie hates that story. Says it does nothing to prove my point, and if anything, only highlights the ephemeral and capricious nature of life. I tell her she's thinking too small. In order to really get the point, you have to see life in the meta, as a web of interconnected events each idea and action setting to motion its own unique set of ramifications, as mysterious as intuition, as unavoidable as death. To this, Millie retorts, I'm describing karma, not culmination. It's a claim I don't dispute. Another of my hobbies is droning. You know, remote-controlled flying cameras. On some level, I guess, it's the natural progression from liking to watch people make decisions at ground level. With a drone you get to watch them make decisions from the air. If you get high enough, sometimes you can even see patterns forming, like social fractals. 
When I first got into it about eight years ago, I started off at the park, flying self-made obstacle courses and recording dogs playing fetch, kids running, couples picnicking, parky things. That got boring pretty quick, though, and I started to seek new avenues. I dabbled in racing clubs, high-altitude nature photography. I even made a little money doing restricted flyovers for realtor video listings. But none of these applications let me do what I really wanted to do with my drone, which was watch people from above. The main problem was that people largely live in cities, and cities generally don't allow drones. This unfortunate truth pushed me into one of the pastime shaded corners. Gorilla droning. Really, gorilla droning is just a menacing-sounding term invented by hobbyists who are trying to make their weekend sound daring. All it means is flying one's toy where it's not supposed to be. In the early days of the recreation, pro-droners had the edge over the anti-droners. No one really knew what drones were capable of, and rules didn't yet exist to control the behavior. Repercussions were of the stop or I'll say stop again variety. But in time, the system began to favor the antis. Not only were laws changed to prohibit the use of drones in urban areas, but counter-drone technology improved too. Now, in addition to running afoul of the law, if you droned in the wrong neighborhood, you might find your very expensive toy brought down and destroyed by an enterprising vigilante with a parabolic disruptor or a bola rifle. Anti-droning actually became its own form of amusement. It added some spice to the sport, but a lot of cost, too. Nearly all sky chimps, slang for gorilla dronists, eventually run out of money and or patience for replacing downed drones. In my case, it was after my fifth machine was taken out, this time by a net gun, that I decided it was time to leave the city and head for the hills. Transitioning from urban to provincial surveillance requires some patience, but it's well worth the effort. People are everywhere in the city, so you don't have to work very hard to find something to watch. There's a lot more hunting and pecking in the open space of the country, but the rewards are greater because the fines are so much wackier. Many people go to the country to be not seen, so when you do happen upon them, they're generally more unfiltered in their behavior because they think they're alone. Again, Millie disapproves, but I just can't help to be fascinated by what people get themselves up to. I've found drug farms, nudist enclaves, and crop mazes, as well as all variety of backwoods ceremony. Nuptial, sacrificial, initiation, maturation, inhumation, matriculation, and expulsion, to name a few. I've seen things buried, smoked, drunk, set to fire, and dismembered. I've seen banquets, brawls, and orgies. To tell you true, I thought I'd seen it all. I thought nothing could surprise me. But what I stumbled onto recently proved me very, very wrong. About six weeks ago, I was grid-scanning a remote quadrant of Parcel 41, northwest of Fernie, when I happened over a pasture that caught my eye. The field was obviously man-made, a fact made evident by its approximate five-acre by five-acre square shape, cut sharply from the middle of an otherwise vast expanse of impenetrable forest. Also eye-catching was the game trail that crisscrossed through the green-groomed and perfectly square meadow in a perfectly X'd pattern. Based on its distinct outlines, it was clear to me that the path was well used, though there were no animals to be seen. The meadow's boundary was unfenced, and no roads led to or from it, a paddock singularly unique for its meticulous design and inaccessible installation. I was captivated. I started flying over it daily, then twice daily, then nearly constantly, 
pausing my observations only long enough to recharge the drone and perform maintenance on the engine and rotors. Day flying led to night flying, as I swapped the full-light optics for low-light, no-light lenses and IR and heat signature packages. Eventually, I just set the drone to constant hover and used a motion-sensing lens. I was obsessed with discovering who was responsible for this impossible sword, its straight razor lines, and the well-worn paths that crossed it. But despite all my time, effort, and creativity, I saw nothing. Until I saw something. For those unacquainted with the lunar cycle, every month of the year has one full moon, making 12 per year. Every two or three years, there's an additional full moon, a 13th, known as the blue moon. Similar to the periodic blue, every month's full moon has a nickname. For example, in January, it's a wolf moon. In May, a hare moon. In August, a corn moon, etc. The nickname for October's full moon is blood moon, and it happens to have occurred eight days ago. It also happens to mark the night that over a month's worth of field surveillance paid off. I was returning to station after a couple hours worth of rejuicing the batteries and a lovely but all-too-brief sandwich and root beer with Millie. The combination of night optics and the blood moon's full light had the field glowing like a stadium on my live feed monitor. Despite the perfect visibility, I was so used to seeing an empty screen that it took me a minute to understand something was happening. I literally rubbed my eyes when I saw it. Filing in steady stream from the north and south corners of the meadow's east side, perfectly spaced, and in perfect cadence, were two lines of cows. They were pouring onto the pasture from some unseen wellspring in the woods, one after the other. The northeast line of cows was moving diagonally across the field toward its southwest corner, and the southeast line was heading to the northwest corner. They moved in unison, nose to tail, and were uniformly spaced one cow length apart, each from the next. When the two lines crossed at the field's inner punct, the lines passed and moved perfectly through each other. Never a disruption to the movement. Nary a stumble, nary a bump. Everything about their movements was identical. Even their legs moved in perfect concert. Ever seen 50,000 Chinese soldiers marching in a parade? It was just like that. Flawless. Hypnotic. Slightly comical. Terrifying. I yelled for Millie to come see, but she'd already headed out, so I sat there by myself, watching in increasing and captivated horror as cow after cow marched out of the wood and across the field with machine-like orchestration. After about 30 minutes of marching, the cavalcade was complete. The forest emptied and every cow to its place. Then, arguably, what happened next turned things even stranger. Because nothing happened. The herd just stood there, motionless each cow staring straight ahead at the cow before it, without so much as a chew of cud or a swish of tail. Total stillness. Like a collection of statues marked out in a perfect X, across the middle of a perfect field, in the middle of exactly nowhere. Following 45 minutes of watching cows watch other cows do nothing, I started to get a little twitchy and decided to drop down for a closer look. This was a mistake. I'd been hovering at 500 feet in whisper mode and had to switch off the baffles to maneuver in. Now, cows don't have the hearing of, say, a bat, but they hear better than humans do. And when the drone started emitting its telltale buzz of descent, my heretofore invisible vantage was compromised. Best guess puts about 400 cows in that field, 
And at the first sound of my drone, the head of every single one of them snapped up in perfect unison and looked directly through my high-res camera, straight into my eyes. Perfect unison. Every single one. Before my mind could even register what was happening, the screen flashed white, then went dead black. The connection was cut, all contact with the drone was lost, and the flight controller in my hands was rendered worthless as stone. I must have sat there for another ten minutes or so, dumb and numb, shocked stupid by the creepy weirdness of it all. Then I reached for the rewind toggle to prove to myself what I'd just seen. But here's another thing. None of it saved. Despite the fact that I watched the whole thing stream through on my live feed, when I went back to rewatch the footage, there was nothing there. Not even static. So far as concerns posterity, none of it ever happened. It would be gross understatement to say all of this unnerved me. I called Millie in a bit of a panic and she hustled back over. I think she could hear the fraying sanity in my voice. My biggest source of terror wasn't the zombie cow parade, the freaky look of other than nothing they gave me when they gazed up into my camera, or even the missing recording. What bothered me most about it all was the impossibility of what I'd seen. I don't like things that can't be explained. Like so many, I rely on logic to make sense of my world. Without explanation, all of this experience is a swirling abyss of random occurrence. That will not do. When Millie arrived, I brought her back to my control room and told her the whole story. Then I showed her the dead flight controller and non-existent vid files. She sat for a moment in thoughtful silence, then gave me the best advice I never took. Let it go. There are forces at work here that are best left be. Ignore the temptation that not knowing presents, and let it go. But my damnable ego deafened me to the sagacity. I spent the next three days in maniacal study, researching everything I could get my hands on that came anywhere near the geo-coordinates of that field. All manner of government record, petition, fiat, warrant, grant, and deed. I studied topographical charts, geological records, logging and forest service maps, and every satellite image I could get my hands on. It may not surprise you to hear, as I was on some level unsurprised to discover, nothing about this field could be found. No record, no mention, no photo, nothing. The location in question was but a drop in a sea of undeveloped, untamed, and largely inaccessible government land. Millie sat by through all of this, watching with increasing concern as I worked with increasing agitation in the waxing light of a dawning realization. As like the video footage, the field does not exist. It's not Millie's way to threaten or beg, but she came pretty close to both when trying to dissuade me from the course I endeavored upon in the wake of my research. It was then I set out to see for myself this place of non-being. Armed with a geocompass and four days of backcountry provisions, by means of abandoned service roads, I penetrated as deeply as I could into the barbarous woods, toward the coordinates of my white whale, before running out of road and trading truck for foot. From there, I picked up any game trail that moved me even roughly toward my destination, a circuitous pre-worn path being in all ways preferable to the savagery of a direct line in this impossibly dense wood. When game trails gave out, the true slog began, as I scraped and clawed my way over and through forests so close-packed and unforgiving that at times I had to take off my pack and squeeze between trees to make forward progress. I set to foot five days ago. 
I saw the last of trails three days ago. I arrived at the field's coordinates five minutes ago. I started to lose hope four minutes ago. There's nothing here. Correction. There's nothing here but forest and felled forest and rocks and more forest. There's no field. There are no trails. There are no cows. There's no treasure of great revelation. From where I stand, there's barely sky. I had such high hopes for this adventure, but none of what I promised myself is obtained. I imagine my victorious return from the wild, rich with knowledge that would reshape the path of all peoples. I imagine Millie's proud look and my gentle joshing. See, I'd tease. I told you it'd be all right. But instead, here I am, a fool in the wild, ignoring good advice, chasing vain ambition, and running out of options. I don't know what I saw on that screen, and I don't know why it's all gone now. But I do know this. Despite what you tell yourself, despite what you hope, some stories don't end the way you want them to. I wish I had never looked. I want to go home. The End This has been another episode of Montana 3000. Check out the website for more information and additional stories. Montana3000.com If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. Until next time, happy trails. 